growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Cheat Code Podcast. Uh, this is part two um, of our interlude into partnerships um, as a whole. I am joined here with uh, Josh Wagner um, and Justin Gray. How's everyone doing? Doing great, man. Keeping it real, man. <laughs> well, last time I thought we had really excellent discussion. Um, obviously, we're all very passionate about this topic. If I do so, so, so ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think for this week, we can jump into different partner types. I know there's a handful of different partner types out there, and then there's some sub partner types in between there. Um, but really, I think, you know, what's in, most important when, when a founder or organization is thinking about partnerships is where do you start? What is, what is the most you know basic way to get into a partnership? What does that look like? Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things that we always run into, and you'll find this, especially in early stage companies that are eager for traction is they're going to do, they're going to set up some sort of referral partnership as kind of that first easy, low friction thing to do. They'll set up a rev share or a commission or something along the lines to, to get people excited. And, and why, why does no one know what a rev share looks like under a referral <laughs> partnership? It's like, that's the first question that seems to always come back. Like what, you know, like it, to me, it just seems like this is, it's been around for so long. And so there are kind of those table stakes, you know, or like bounds. Right. But like, it's, it's just strange to me that like no one goes into a P and L planning or, you know, like a partner strategy planning exercise, knowing what they can give based on the cost of sale target. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's, it, you know, it's almost uh, one of those easy button things in their mind. Of you just go and it's all you see spray and pray with that as much as you do with a, a traditional direct go to market, right? It's like well, I'm going to talk to as many people as I can who might have some affiliation in my space and say, "Hey, you refer someone over, you get a 15% rev share, or 20% or whatever it may be," and it's just kind of this non-intentional thing that people do and think that there's going to be some sort of outcome associated to well, it. That that also brings up like what else? Uh, what a Another topic that's always crazy to me and Josh, I'm sure you, you will know particularly who I'm referring to with this, but like just in terms of cost of sale, like, and, and, you know, when, when something is, I feel like everyone designs sales comp programs, partner compensation programs with the intention of failure because, <laughs> and then, and then once those rates are getting paid, then it's like, oh, we got to lower these, these rates. So like number one that tells me. There's not a lot of intentionality on the upfront in terms of like what that referral is actually worth. What does it take from a performance standpoint to warrant a referral, right? Because like Sean, you were talking earlier before the show um, about like affiliate links and things like that in terms of like this very small, oftentimes nominal, like, oh, you're on my website buying sneakers and I'm going to send you over to the, you know, world's greatest shoelace manufacturer. And I'm going to give you, you know, some 1% uh, rev share in, in accordance to that. But then when things start getting paid out, like it's like, oh, how much are we paying for, for these things? I think that's probably less of a 
I mean, the undercurrent for me always seems like it's like, well, I don't either. I don't think it's that hard or I don't think the referral quality is that great. Anytime that you're like scrutinizing what you're paying out in terms of a cost to sale or cost of uh, referral um, when it's being successful, because, you know, obviously if it was massively successful and everyone was earning money, you know, I'd be scrutinizing that. But I guess, you know, the call to action here is like you have to design these programs to succeed and you have to define what that success looks like on front, which again is a major, like obvious statement and like a new shit type of moment. But like just it, it so often isn't done. That's right. I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day and about this exact same topic. And he was asking me what advice I had for how to start a, a, you know, a partner program in general. And so I said, the first thing you want to think about is outcomes. And you've got to decide what outcome you want with that program. And if it's top of the funnel, then you start looking at a thing like an affiliate partnership, which is links to other marketing you know, uh, clients out there that can just bring some things in and some interest at the top of the funnel that you can qualify and put through. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, direct uh, close one deals, you can look at something like channel, but, you know, from a referral perspective is the easiest barrier for entry. And so, again, I think to your point, like oftentimes they're, they're designed to say, hey, we don't want to overpay for these referrals. But the problem is like, you're not going to get any unless there's incentive enough to start that channel. And so, you know, they might start at 10, 15, 20 percent. But in reality, that's not going to move the needle at all. And you're not going to be able to plug that into your overall pipeline strategy or, or revenue strategy. And so you just have all of these feelers out there. You have to go through things like legal and you have to have these contracts made and you have to do all of this effort in order to get the most minimal uh, return on it. And so I think you have to think in outcomes and you have to think about what happens when it works. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the big guys always do partnerships, right? Or referral partnerships for that matter. But they do know what they're getting into, right? They're They're not a big guy for no reason at all they are looking at purely as an acquisition play and they don't care if their cost of acquisition eats up their entire margin year one if they're a true SaaS business with a decent retention rate because years two three four and five are what really matters so at least they're thinking about that they don't think through maybe a lot of the other things that are going to make that sing but to the, to the point of outcomes we acquire customers we don't care how much it costs us because we're going to make that money back on the back end that's right and when you think about how do you get that referral channel moving and if you think about, you know, partnering with maybe influencers in the space or, or other consultants that have a brand that are out there, the first thing that you can easily do to start building that affinity is some co-marketing where you promote their things. You promote, you put them on your podcast, or you put them on your blog post, you have them do guest blogs, or you promote a website, or you get them to speak at events, right? You want them to start building this affinity, especially if you're a brand new early stage company that doesn't have your own brand, you just kind of start latching onto them. And so it's more of a little give to get. But you can't think about, hey, come do our partner program. We'll give you 20% if you go tout our, our software out there. They're just not going to do it. They've, there's they've got other important things. So I think you know, when you start these referral programs, start thinking about ways you can start promoting some of these other people's brands um, in order to start building some affinity. Well, I think that kind of plays into what in my mind is like the next notch up, which really doesn't have a, a typical name as, as we think about like, you know, historic partnership programs. It's normally you have referral partners, you have resell partners, you know, or white label potentially. And then you've got like integration, product extension totally. uh, type of partnerships. But like for me, there's a layer in between referral and resell, which is like truly co-go to market partnership, right? right? Like you're, you are doing co-marketing. You're definitely referring low hanging fruit. And Josh, I know you're working through this with one of our portcos right now, right? Like you're, you're kind of experimenting as to what that 
strong joint value prop is. I think we talked about this a bit on, on the last episode, but then more importantly, like that is an extension of your sales team. And so mm-hmm. you're not man, magic is the wrong word for it, but like you are involving their team across the board from leadership all the way down to, you know, SDR, BDR, if you've got, you know, those types of motions and, and you're integrating those into your go-to-market motion and you're truly going to, you know, go to market together um, and, and, you know, think about how those co-selling efforts are going to lead to, again, like that one plus one equals, you know, 10 uh, or whatever the equation is these days. And, and that, you know, that partnership model is where there's not a ton of resource out there for, you know, even in terms of awareness on like, why is right. that different? I thought that was a referral partnership. Like that is not a standard referral partnership. That is a, a very unique snowflake um, that I think gets lumped into referral and also takes the normal motion that you would put behind a referral and amplifies that by like a million. Um, and that's where I see people falling down because it's like, all right, we, you know, we, I think we talked about this last time as well. You go through those initial like gates that everyone knows and then everything just drops off and it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, what are we getting from our partners? And, you know, you get people barking at uh, partnership leaders and stuff like that. Like, why are we getting more deals from from our channel partners and so on? It's like, well, because you're not giving anything into that process. And I think to your earlier point, like that's really where you have to give in order to get and there's dynamics and nuances based on are you the 10,000 pound gorilla or are you that mm-hmm. you know scrappy startup but it's going to be something that looks more like you know your inside sales team than you know this disjointed partner where you know magically just kind of pop in the door and and they're the best customers ever yeah i mean the reason it's not a common label for a partnership is because it's fucking hard <laughs> <laughs> Totally. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a forever motion, right? Like yeah. you, you never stop giving that effort. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we t- all the stuff you're talking about. Yeah, sorry, Sean. It's just like, I'm thinking about even the stuff we did at lead MD, like you're embedding yourself in this organization. Um, at, you know, if, Justin, you remember this, but I would suit up, I'd go to San Mateo once a month. I'd basically walk into the front desk lady, you know, give her a high and a wink and walk through the door like I own the place and just start wandering around, right? You take a little of that candy. They had the, the greatest candy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. right. The candy stash. But, you know, you're just kind of embedding yourself in this company and that takes a certain level of trust from both sides to even do that, right? And that's just like a small example. Sorry to cut you off there, Sean. No, I was going to say it is hard. And I think the reason that, there's got to be this unnamed kind of segue between referral and resale is because there's so much there's so much trust that has to be built within the entire organization on both sides, right? So you can't just say one day, hey, we've got this coast or this resale partnership, sales get on board, marketing get on board, uh, success get on board, uh, support get on board, right? Where there there's just this external you know group of folks that are out there running a whole cycle, and then all of a sudden they dump you a sale on your uh, with no context or anything like that, and so. You know, you have to start building those relationships across the board with all the apartments. And, we, you know, we talked about this last time too, like you've got to have that stakeholder buy-in and then you've got to implant those people into those processes and understand, you know, from a, um, you know, SOW perspective, like who's going to do what um, and who's responsible for what and creating those different, different uh, motions. 
Sorry, there's well, there's plenty outside my window right now. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're shining too. Holy shit. Yeah, how are you, Justin? It's a really large turkey. If, if there's a turkey running around in Scottsdale, Arizona, we're going to get problems. That might be like the, the fourth seal of the apocalypse or something. Uh, but it's funny on, re, you know, we're talking about resale a little bit, like, which is a, in my mind, a very mature motion. Like, you have to really know, you know, what you do how you do it and, and, you know, divvy up those responsibilities in a, in a way that's intentional. But like, and lately we've run into a, you know, like a, a handful, maybe even more of businesses that like slingshotted right to resale. And yeah. now, of course, now they're seeing the negative ramifications of that, which is like, either you don't know your customer, you know, or potentially even worse, your customer doesn't know you. That's it. Um, and you, you know, you're also like, you've got challenges in terms of like how it was sold, what the expectations are, you've got churn, you know, coming in, in there is a strong impact. You've got pricing ramifications. So just, it, you know, mentally I've always seen resale as like a really dangerous water. And granted, there are some businesses that are, are designed and built uh, and should be, you know, white label or, or resale businesses. But um, I feel like that's the partner, you know, r- running their motion and, and, you know, the, the other party not having a really strong, expectation set setting uh uh component and you know cultural and strategic goal in mind because it's easy to you know get sucked into someone's engine especially when you're viewed as like a widget or you know something that fills a gap in their solution and now suddenly you're, you're giving them a new skew and you're giving them pricing and in, in fact josh like now i'm thinking like the second company we did like they that, that's like very expected within their right um the, the, their ecosystem or that, you know, their industry is resale. And so like, even when we were starting to talk partnerships, it was like, oh no, they've got a rate card and you know, they're, they're just taking it end to end. It was like, wow, you're like a brand new startup business that no one knows, you know, what you do and what they do is, is highly unique. Um, and so I feel like that's a really dangerous place to be in, especially when you're not, uh, you know, there intentionally. Well, think yes. about the tears we went through, the referral, the code GTM and all the stuff that we talked about that was hard in those things organically. Well, when you look at a space like IT, which is largely sold through resellers, you know, you've got these mm-hmm. big players like CEW as an example, right? And all their reps are out there selling this bag of stuff that they have through these vendors. Well, you know how it is, right? Who's getting comped the most? So you talk about your referral, your rev share, whatever, who's paying me the most, who's in my ear the most who's sending me the most, you know, referrals, whatever it may be. That's a really, really hard game to play that requires a ton of effort to make sure your resale channel and the one you're talking about in our portfolio, that the the primary product is sold through resellers. That's not the only thing they're selling, right? They're selling other things on top of it. So how do you get their attention? It's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. I think just taking like a step back, I think it's really important for organizations to do a bit of an analysis of where they sit in their ecosystem, specifically where they sit. Are they a platform? Are they an add-on? Who is adjacent to them? What categories are adjacent to them? Who are the biggest players in those categories? How are they selling? How do things get sold, et cetera? And start to really understand what is you know partner adjacent to them. Because quite honestly, this isn't a one-size-fits-all. And it may be that you are not set up to have a resale model, or it may not be that you are not set up to have a good referral channel. And that has to do with the complexity of what you're selling, how easily it integrates into different things, how easily it's sold, how easy it can be explained, can it tap into a larger solution as we talked about before. And so oftentimes, 
you know, <clears throat> talking about, again, stakeholder buy-in, you might have the C-suites, like, we want to do partnerships. What's And they give, they're like, hey, partner person, go figure this out, right? And they're like, we'd love to have a strategic reseller. Like that's it doesn't go from start a partner program to have a strategic reseller anytime yeah. soon, right? There's a lot of steps involved. And oftentimes they're the ones that just say, yeah, partnership sounds great. Go figure it out. And they don't like the answer, which is that you're not going to see a, an automatic ROI anytime soon. You cannot put this in your forecast necessarily. These are things that you build over time. Yeah. It, you know, it, this is a biased comment for sure, but I think one of the underserved partnerships that people don't think about as much as niched consultants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I obviously have a bias from that because that's what I sold, but niched consultants are always trying to sell more services. They're trying to be stickier. They are experts, like deep experts in what they do. They often have really deep trusted relationships that last for a very long time. And there's just something, if you have a product that's niched and there's a consulting contingent out there that is focuses on your niche of the world. That is a highly complementary partnership. You're not competing the same way you would be at a software to software partnership. Uh, well, the, the and- key to that, I feel like is, you know, a lot of consultancies don't have what I would call a traditional sales, sales. team or, or, or sales channel. Correct. And therefore you're dealing with like naturally consultative individuals who correct understand a value exchange under, you know, like want to understand your product or offering and are going to go through the work to, to really, you know, uh, uh, develop an ROI model or, or a value prop that is not only does not only make sense, but is, is well thought out. And, you know, each of those pieces has kind of scientifically been, been formulated when you dump that into, you know, a, a normal B2B SaaS AE, right? Like they're just not inherently going to go through that motion. You know, some might, but on the whole, not that's not a, a, a very common exercise. And so, you know, I, I think that also just goes to if you, you know, who is the DNA of of the partner? Where are you going to be able to get some of those quicker wins to your point? And if you're not dealing with a team that looks like that, now you've got to, you know, product marketing becomes monstrous, like getting with their sales engineers getting in with their AEs, getting in with their BDRs and just doing all of that education and, and support um, becomes so much more critical because there's no way that you want someone giving the wrong, you know, value. Oh, this is going to, you know, cure cancer. You, you, told, <laughs> right. you, you told them our product was going to do what, you know what I mean? And and now you've got to deal with that, um, you know, that MPS and, and, and that customer unhappiness. And so, Knowing where the partner is on that maturity line is, is I think, just as important as understanding what types of partners you want to go out and partner mm-hmm. with. Yeah, so I recommend having some level of certification program. And it could be something super light, like you go through a couple of days of sales training. It could be answering some questions. It could be sitting to a product demo, right? And that can evolve over time. But you got to have a baseline, especially if people are talking about you, right? It's like they have to be on brand. They've got to be talking about the same value props. They can't be just selling you know, what they think adds value, it has to be in line with your mission because to the point earlier, especially on the resale side, you can start losing touch with your customer. Your customer may not even know who you are. And ultimately you have no control over that, the trajectory of their customer life cycle. So let's talk about that for a second, because I've always been on the other end of, you know, for the majority of my career, but on the other end of the partner certification aspect. And 
man, that, I've seen some really, really this <laughs> poor sort of, it, it, that goes to end user as well. Cause there's this, you know, I'll say it, it's obvious, but like there's a strange dynamic in, you know, certainly B2B SaaS to where you're trying to create a certification, but you're also, you don't want to create any friction or any gate to the usage of your product. And so right. we mm -hmm. create these like false experts and there are plenty of, you know, certifications that we can point to out there in terms of like, oh, great, you're, you know, fill in the blank certified. That basically means nothing in a real world. It's it's just, you know, uh, somewhat of a, a a window dressing type certification. But like, Sean, obviously, based on what you just said and, and having sat in that seat, like what what were some of those goals yeah. for a certification program? So it had to base, based on partner type, um, I'll start with, you know, um, our solution partners, which were basically consultants, right? And we wanted them, they had to go through a program where they uh, knew how to implement the product from a technical perspective because they first started becoming partners to fill the gaps between our velocity of implementations. So we didn't have enough people in seat to do that. So we're like, you need to get product certified, right? And then from there, um, they had to get certified on the messaging. Um, and that was just, that was stage one, right? That was the base level that we had that evolved over time. But we just, we needed them to be able to implement the product technically and speak the way that we speak about the product. On the um, integration and product side of things, if they were one of our ecosystem partners, they had to go and read through our APR documentation. They had to understand the use cases for integration. There was four or five main ways they could go integrate uh, before they went into our program because what ended up happening is that we'd, have, we'd give these developers a sandbox and they'd come in there and they'd start building stuff. And then all of a sudden we'd have this uh, we had integrations at Salesoft where they would just all of a sudden have so many questions on things that were written in the API docs that were already explained. We had guides created. We had all these different things. And our engineers were like, we're not going to do this anymore, but this is what's going to happen, right? So we had to start putting up gates to have access to those dev licenses and access to that email address until they actually just spent a little bit of time on it. But you know, for us, it wasn't about trying to keep them from things. It was trying to just make sure they had some base level of knowledge so they could go and go execute on some, you know, menial tasks without needing our handholding because going back again, and I'll harp on this a million times, but you have to have stakeholder buy-in. And if they're taking resources from their teams, again, partnership sits in the middle of everything. So you're asking everyone else for help. If they take away too much of that bandwidth, then they'll just stop caring about it and stop supporting mm -hmm. it. How do you balance that though? The being supportive and enablement function versus being a gate and a blocker to getting things done. Well, at Salesoft, it was me making decisions. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, like when someone got to be too much, I was like, "All right, sorry guys, I'm kicking them out." Right? Um, and and that and that had to happen. And so um, there wasn't that we scaled that over time. Um, but ultimately, the responsibility came down to the partner. And so we told them, and it was part of that framework of uh, getting certified. It's like, if you don't know these things, and if, you, if you're coming in to ask these questions, you will not get support from our team. And so there's, there's some people that got frustrated with that. But I was like, the alternative is that I can, I can literally jam this all this down your throat over and over and over again and make it really difficult for you to get in the door in the first place. So I don't know if there's like a silver bullet to this at all, but there's yeah. a balance between, do you want to be easy to be partners with or do you want to be difficult? And I think... That has a lot to do, it's kind of parallel with the size and the maturity of your organization. The bigger you are, the more you can ask of people. The smaller you are, the more you're going to have to get. I remember a couple of instances being real fucking difficult. Basically, <laughs> basically telling you that on the other end that I'm not getting certified. I know your shit better than your people do. Just let me go sell it. Yeah. <laughs> they, which they also like can be, yeah, I mean, but you talk to the right person, they'll be like, fine, I'll do it. Uh, because everyone's trying to look for value. But again, 
it depends on what per level on the totem pole you're talking to and how uh, strategic you are of the partner. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's certainly some interesting conversations because uh, <laughs> my end goal is to get into the field, right? Like I felt right. to me, the partner person was a gate. So I was just trying to get through that check mark, check box and, and get into the field and try to make some magic right. happen there. But I get it from your standpoint, like you got to have some level of control as the yeah. thing scales out. Like you can't just, everyone you can't be yeah. building product, you know what I mean? Like from right. integration standpoint, that's. You know, essentially, they they are representing your product in terms of how like that integration yeah. works. I'm trying to think of who does that really well. Uh, I think HubSpot. I was going to say Black. Black is like like really well too. Yeah. Whenever you're like presenting those, like, all right, this is um, you know, there's that phrasing software the right way. Like these are the right way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for this type of integration or how this should look within an application and so on. Like, right. yep people that have gone through that exercise and can provide that context, I feel like, you know, uh, are setting themselves up for, for a greater degree of success. Yeah. I mean, and then the, the last thing I'll say about certifications, it doesn't have to be all bad or it doesn't have to be all uh, friction. It can be something where so you, you add value as they get through that process. So things like discounted sponsorships or free sponsorships or free blog posts, or if yeah. you reach this tier, you get to go do these guest things. You can be you know, you can speak to our customers or you get, you know, access or introductions or however it is. So, you know, again, it doesn't have to be all friction. You have to do this, this, this to get in there. It's be like, wait, once you get here, we'll put, we'll put out a blog post with you guys and you can talk about the joint use case, right? Ahead of it actually coming out, right? You can get some beta testers and things of that nature. So, you know, it doesn't always have to be a miserable experience. Man, man, that's oh. an, an aspect that just people do not leverage enough. Like you think about, how valuable that customer base is and like uh you know the example heroes put out is like skos or rkos or mm -hmm. you know whatever acronym you want to use for them like such a valuable forum to 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 be a part of right and like for the most part like people don't spot you know like mid-size organizations don't sponsor or or open up sponsorships within that level or content you know uh presentation or creation at that level and i feel like there's just so many like pragmatic ways to to provide value to partners out there um, that tend to get siloed into these teams, and then those teams become very myopic in how they view them. Like if you're if you're really trying to do something different, I would say like that's the area where there's a ton of potential for for innovation. Is you know how can you provide access to your internal teams, your customer base. Uh, to your point, like first looks at product or product roadmap and so on and make those additional value adds to jump through the hoops that you want partners to jump through or that is in their best interest to jump through. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't happen enough, but when it happens well, you create, you really do create an ecosystem uh, where people want to come in. And so I think, you know, if you think about it through these stages, a lot of what you're going to be doing early on is selling. You're going to sell referral partners, you're going to sell go-to-market partners, resale partners, integration partners, right? And ideally, you want to get to a point where there's enough ecosystem value for them to want to come in and do those things versus you having to sell it to them. And things like access to customers, being able to come and getting in front of your SKO or being able to um, go present at your conference. Those things are all going to be value adds that get them to come inbound versus you having to go sell them every time. Yeah, I guess well, uh, from... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just say from from a rep perspective, like... What, what did you really care about when it came to partners? Because everyone, you know, it, it, when I said access to like internal teams, I feel like there's like these very cookie cutter frameworks. Mm -hmm. that, again, people try to fit folks into, oh, you can do a 
10 minute lunch and learn presentation to our sellers, right? Like, like you've been on obviously both sides of that, that presentation, but like from the seller side, like what actually enables or has value to a seller? So go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say from my perspective, when I was sitting there, you know, I was looking to niche into a group of people that almost cared about what I cared about. Right. So if you think back to the early days of Marketo, they were, they had built this with Bill Binge and Rick Harrell. They had built this like really fine tuned SMB volume and velocity business. Right. And like services was a bad word. Right. They like, listen, you're slowing. Yeah, you know, it's supposed to be easy. Yeah. It's easy. Like I, I don't want anything to do with services. And as a result of that, we created some white label service packages that they could add on and, and got a little bit of traction there. And that was fine, but I was going to get nowhere with those people. Right. And then the enterprise motion, like real enterprise was in its infancy. And that's where the internal professional services team at Marketo was spending all of their time was trying to enable these, you know, monster logos that they were closing. And those sellers, their mantra was, yeah, I get it. I need help with this stuff, but frankly, I need one throw to choke. And I can tell my guy down the hallway to do whatever the hell I want him to do. And I can't do that with you. So that was a friction point, right? Well, there was this little like newly created mid-market team that had eight sellers, seven or eight sellers. They were kind of out on an island by themselves and they were selling good, like low six figure deals and maybe up a little bit from that. And they had some really thoughtful people in that group. And I made two or three really good friends in that group who like wanted to go sell bigger deals into good logos. And they knew it wasn't a volume and velocity sales cycle. They knew it wasn't true enterprise, but they still needed to have a value message, right? And, and we used each other to kind of craft what that value sales cycle was going to look like together. And we made hay there for, you know, two, three years until, you know, acquisitions and things got blown apart. But for me, it was really looking at who's a thoughtful seller, who's selling into a, an account level type that's high enough to warrant wanting a services partner in there, right? To, to, to value engineer a sale. Those that, and that's another point, that team wasn't getting access to the value engineering team, only enterprise mm-hmm. was. So I could act like their value engineering team. So I, I think that's kind of the narrative is think about what you need to, where can you squeeze yourself in where you are high value? I wasn't high value across the board, right? I was high value in that one group and that was fine. You know, we made some money there. Yeah, yeah I think that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's so critical. Like not only what is the value to the end user, but what is the value to the seller sitting on the other side yeah, of totally. the table? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we I saw something similar in sales ops. So on the SMB and lower mid-market side, we are winning deals competitively based off of our integrations, a number of integrations that we had and being able to connect into all the different products um, they had in their sales stack. Because at the SMB mid early like lower mid-market level with a lot of these SaaS companies, they had just such a mix of products. And there's so many different sales products out there. So they all had their their different requirements. And so our sellers on in those segments loved meeting with our partners to understand what the integration did what value it had, how easy it was to set up, what, what how it integrated with our system, how they integrated with their system um, so that they could be fluent whenever they're on these deals because at the time we had about 2x more integrations than our, our number one competitor. And so we that was a huge competitive differentiator. However, on the enterprise side, they didn't give a shit. They just, frankly, they had these were big monsters they were selling to at the enterprise who they were slower to adopt a lot of these newer different technologies. So it's like, they just needed to make sure that integrated with the core thing, Salesforce, Dynamics, you know, Gmail, Outlook, et cetera. Now, what they cared about was being able to add a layer of services to be sold on those deals because enterprise, our enterprise buyers expected us to have 
a partner to come in and do these things. They expected them to have, have us to have these things. And we're just like, you know, they look around like, who can I use for this? Right. And like, that's where that program just started getting momentum. Cause like we were walking in some of our partners to like IBM, you know, and to, you know, Google, uh, Google for work and all these like larger organizations that expected you to come to the table with two or three different options for partners. And so they wanted to go meet with our solution partners and figure out, Hey, who can go support this giant enterprise motion? And so for us, we would just segment it like, I didn't send all the same updates to enterprise that I did them in market or SB, right? And and they didn't care. And so I think to your point, like you got to figure out what the outcomes that are looking for, how that buyer is buying, and then how you can help uh, insert yourself into that process. Can you, uh, like, I, I'm not as familiar with, you know, I was always on the solution partner side, right? Like we were a services mm-hmm. business. So the next tier you kind of started touching on it is this integration and product partnership. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of gave a little bit of background there, but what what is it, right? Like, give us a little the, the, the nitty gritty yeah. of what an integration partner really is. So for us at SalesOff, we had, when we when we transitioned from Prospector, which was a uh, list building lead kind of gen uh, tool that lets you go build a target list of leads and then put it into your CRM, which we uh, sunset that and moved on to what was called Cadence, now the SalesOff platform, which is all about the engagement with the customer, um, the sales cycle, cadences and, and messaging, et cetera. Well, we looked at it and we said, okay, well, now we don't have any more data. But in order to get this machine off the ground, people need to put data in here. So we're like, all right, let's build some APIs. So we built some APIs to integrate into like Zoom and Discover Org at the time and the rest of them, right? And that was kind of our first foray into like what an ecosystem looked like. And we realized, you know, I started doing some research on like, what is an ecosystem? What makes you the product versus an add-on or a platform versus an add-on? And so what we did is we did a benchmark analysis of all our users and realized they were spending about 70% of their day an hour platform versus any other platform over Salesforce, over their email, over everything else. So we're like, okay, we are the system of record. Now, if we are the system of record, we're responsible for building an ecosystem so that all these other products can go feed into it. Because if they're living in here, they need to be able to access all those things without opening different tabs. The data needs to come in here. We need to aggregate all those things for them to be able to understand what to do next. And so we started just building out public APIs, built a program around it. And what we did is basically we built the first handful of integrations into like the big player in each of these different adjacent categories. And then everyone else came in. So what took, you know, in the first year, I think we had like 15 integrations. And by the end of year two, we had like 75. And then it doubled to like 150 the year after that. And we only had to build like five or six of them. Hmm. And so it became this thing where we're building this ecosystem. So to kind of, to dig a little bit further and to talk a little bit more about outcomes, the outcome that our business thought these integrations would create is this giant referral network. And that's not the truth in a, in a product ecosystem world. That's just, it's just, frankly, it's not. You're trying to create bigger value for your mutual customers. And sure, it helps in a competitive situation, but it's really hard for like the add-on into your platform to be like, hey, you should go buy their platform and vice versa all the time, right? There was a lot of that that happened, but it wasn't something that you could go forecast for. Mm-hmm. But really, the outcome that we saw um, and that I drove towards um, with that program specifically was a competitive differentiator. Hands down. Mm-hmm. We wanted to, and the affinity and from a marketing and like code go to market perspective, it was huge for us. We had every single, you know, our, our conference was called Rainmaker. Every single Rainmaker, we were, we were overselling every sponsorship that we had. We had them on stage. We had speakers. We had them bringing their networks in, right? It just became this larger than life thing. And if you think about like the biggest, you know, the biggest example of it is like Salesforce. They talk about building a moat around your product, right? And so, we also started looking at net retention numbers and realizing that if they had more than three integrations outside of like core integrations put in, they, there was like a, I think there was like a 3X uh, LTV oh, wow. or LCV and it, their churns like, a, you know, half of, of what normal was. And so 
all of a sudden we're one of the big initiatives from an implementation side and from a customer success side is get as many of these things hooked in as possible. Yeah. And so we started sharing our customer lists with all of our partners uh, for any net new customer and saying, oh, they're, they're a Vidyard customer. They've got Drift. They've got this. Let's get these plugged in during implementations. That's cool. Yeah, that's such a critical, critical motion there. Like in, you know, earlier we talked about, or in the last episode, talked about culture. Like that's a cultural motion, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you win a new customer, hey, what other, you know, uh, wh- yeah. which of our partners are, are those also co-customers of? And just, you know, making sure that those connections get made. I mean, we were in such a hyper competitive sales landscape uh, in sales engagement. Like it was, it, everything was like kill or be killed. Like every day there was another fire. You know, they won this deal. We won this deal from them. Like it was so hyper competitive. Like anything that we could find that could help move the needle, uh, people were going. You could, you had stakeholders on it. But as long as they said, hey, outreach doesn't do this, then I could, I could get anybody on board. Well, to that point, like, so this, I think this is an uncommon use case, but maybe you saw it, you know, Marketo was also the system of record for marketers, right? right. And they had a pretty, well, what, what did they call their ecosystem? Uh, launch point? Launch, launch point. Launch point, yeah. And, you know, there were, you know, maybe 1,700 or so vendors in there. But there was this one use case I remember that got really popular for non-standard integration partners, so non-Salesforce, basically. And it was with um, NetSuite. And there was a company out there. Oh, God, what a, what a nightmare. Going oh, I know. It was a total nightmare. But they built this connector, right, that was supposed to connect um, NetSuite and Marketo. And it got to a point where they white-labeled it so that the Marketo reps could actually sell it, like, on mm-hmm. their paper. Yeah. Did you ever run across anything like that? We may or may not have built something into a competitor's API that when a new customer came on, let it pull all of their templates and their cadences and all of their data and put it, pull it from their system into our system. May or may not have done this. And that competitor may or may have not done this to us. Uh, but it Got did it. start through a third party. And it, before there was ones that were made in-house, we right. did use like uh, people like Mercado and Zapier of the world that could, could easily put those things. But like, I think those are pretty critical and you can get really crafty, like into solving a lot of these solutions. And so, you know, one of the big uh, roadblocks we had with, with ripping and replacing a customer is like, what of all the stuff I've built? Right. Like, how do I, I don't, I don't want to migrate all that over. If we're like, Hey, we could do it like that. They're like, okay. You know? And so it became almost too easy for our biggest competitors and I to trade customers that it was happening like on a bi-monthly basis. You know, we were just like, they'd have it like six months later to come back over to us. Um, but there's a, you, to your, to answer your question, like there's a lot of these different things that we took from partners. We did, we did, we, there was a couple of things we did on like some of these middleware products that they built us stuff. And then we, get, yeah. we got the code base for that. And we basically just replicated it internally. Um, it. took that code. And so they open sourced it. Right. And so there's a lot of ways you can create these solutions, but like, I mean, I love this. I loved my time there doing this stuff because it was, there was always problems to be solved and there was always very creative ways or more than likely there's really creative ways in order to just go solve those problems. And having a big customer or excuse me, partnership base allows you to kind of like feed off each other and figure out like, Hey, can you help solve this thing? Or do you know anyone that can help solve this thing? And like, you get real creative. Well, that's where, and I know the fundamental answer to this comes down, down to market opportunity, but like, that's where I feel like certain types of integrations that are so core to functionality eventually have to be brought in house mm-hmm. or at least you know, understood at a deeply specific level. Because the example that Josh is is talking about here, so like, you know, it's no big secret that like Marketo was built 
with Salesforce in mind, like all of their functionality was Salesforce dependent. And so, you know, because there were these, you know, very large organizations that happened to use Dynamics or NetSuite as their CRM of record, which was not, you know, many, but they, they were there and the opportunity, you know, on an account by account basis was large. Anytime you ran into one of those, like the propensity for failure was massive because Marketo mm -hmm. did not, you know, now Adobe did not own really the integration into those platforms. And there's so much variance in an instance of Dynamics that, you know, I think they still support Prem, the, between Prem, between Cloud, and then between the different versions of each that, you know, like in 11 years, I literally, re, you know, backed out, re, you know, clawed back comp and refunded a customer money yeah. once. And it was due to the NetSuite connector. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. like, because they, so, you know, not because we screwed anything up, but because the connector couldn't do what the customer needed mm -hmm. to do. And it was sold in that process that it could, of course, do those functions. And then we were brought in to implement and everyone throws up their hands and says, this is not what this was built to do. Yeah, we did. We had a similar one into Dynamics and HubSpot until we built our own natively. And I think, and we had partners to do it, uh, this middleware partners, and I had like four different ones. And I think we had success one out of like 25 times, like in longevity, because the CRM connection had to be so specific to each business and they, there just wasn't enough customization involved into it. And so if anyone from our uh, customer success team is listening to this, they will they probably feel <laughs> a little bit of tension towards me for, for pushing those deals through. Um, but we wanted to win and, and, and they were like highly competitive deals. But yeah, I think, you know, I think overarching, if it's a, it's, if it's a core integration like that in such, in such a big business system, like you've got to build it yourself. Yeah. 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 Sean, there was something you said earlier that made me laugh a little bit. You were talking about selling into a big enterprise customer and needing to have like this expectation of services. Mm -hmm. And this is relevant for early stage companies and starting to think about, you know, when do you find those partnerships that are going to maybe wrap services around what it is you do? I explicitly remember Visible. This is pre-acquisition by Adobe or Marketo. They were still, you know, early stage and they were getting really good market traction. And they sold a deal or they were in a deal cycle with Cisco and they put their standard 6K services pack in front of them. And Cisco just started laughing. They're like, they're like, what is this? Like, well, this is our implementation. There was like, you think, you think you're going to implement Cisco for $6,000? Right. They said, come back to me when you've got well, a we put the platinum package in there. What are you talking about? They're like, come back to me when you have a partner who can put some real meat around this. And we, okay, I remember right. uh, Aaron and them calling us like, hey, how do we do this? What do we do? <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this has been another great conversation. Um, I can't wait to the next one. Anything uh, you guys want to add before we wrap it up? I just, I think the, the big cliffhanger here is what will the turkey be doing next time? Is the turkey still alive? And can the turkey come on the podcast? <laughs> it does have five babies with it. Um, and so, yeah, there's, it's still right here in my yard. Um, I will I'll report back the next time. I've seen it a couple of times, but that's the closest I've got. Assume this is one of those ugly wild turkeys, right? Not like a big fat. Yeah, it's like a kind of a skinny one. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, kind of yeah. All right. So uh, before we I'm go, sure there's meat on that bone, but I'm not gonna try. 
I was at my brother's bachelor, my, my one of my buddy's bachelor parties. He had it at his, his parents' house in Montana, one of the best bachelor parties I've ever been to. And we're all getting ready to to go out. We grab some razors, you know, pack some booze and some, you know, stuff to go. <laughs> grab some razors? The real the the uh no the off road like uh, I was like what kind of fucking bath no, no, no. the four the off road four by four things oh okay. Uh, okay the side by side side by side there you go side by side coolers of beer maybe some some firearms maybe not um, <laughs> go up and we get back and his uncle is feathering a wild turkey and we're like dude what the hell happened. He goes, well, this wild turkey was sitting in the yard and like, I, I just, I wanted to get it. So I kept asking Lance's mom if I could shoot it. And she was like, no, you can't shoot it on the property. And he's like, I kept begging and begging. So finally I just popped it. And he makes fajitas out of this wild turkey that he shoots in my friend's mom's, you know, meadow. And we start eating it. And I'm like, dude, this is really good. What did you season this with? And he's like, nothing. And she goes, that's why I let him shoot it. They eat the herbs out of my herb garden. <laughs> wow. Wow. Naturally herbed. <laughs> well, on that, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for uh, everyone who's listening. Uh, more uh, anecdotes of Montana and turkeys. Tune in next time. Uh, Justin and Josh, uh, another great episode. Um, I think uh, just do the table stuff, like like and subscribe and, and all those the good things to our podcast, please. Uh, but until next time. <laughs>